0: Hello, and welcome back to the Flaming Grenade Serial Podcast, where you can listen to the story of the Flaming Grenade in commute sized podcasts. If you want to catch up with the story, follow along, or read ahead, you can purchase the ebook on Amazon. Please consider supporting the author by purchasing the ebook. And let's get to it. This is the next ep- episode of the Flaming Grenade. Chapter 43 Guangzhou, China. Sir, Ping announced in the doorway. Shi Wong says he has an urgent matter to discuss. Chung waved him in, not looking up from his desk. Shi entered the room and stood silently, waiting for Chung to look up. Well, Chung said, what do you want? Shi stuttered, sir, sir, your contact in Italian intelligence has reported a breach. At this, Chung looked up. She had gotten his attention. Chung waited for Shi to continue. He reports the hacker went for a file describing the Chi, the Carabinieri group. They have traced the hacker to the United States, but the trail runs cold there. Very sophisticated firewalls and other security measures. Send me the entire report immediately, Chung ordered. She bowed and backed out of the room. A minute later, an email pinged on Chung's computer. He opened the file and began to read. The report did not detail the contents of the document that was compromised. Apparently, the technicians who noticed the breach did not have the proper clearance to access the file. Chung had ordered his source within the Carabinieri to search for and find any reports detailing the badges or the specialized Carabinieri squad. So far, the source had found nothing Chung didn't already know. And now, some hacker in the States uncovered just what he had been looking for. Chung pushed the intercom button and ordered Ping to summon his best hackers. If the American could do it, so could they. Within five minutes, two mousy men appeared at the office looking extremely nervous. Being summoned to Mr. Chung's office was never a good thing. Chung gave his orders and dismissed them. They knew if they did not come up with good results in record time, their lives weren't worth the chairs they sat in. Chung sat back in his chair. His feet didn't touch the floor, he was so short, and they were swinging back and forth. He had always suspected one of the badges had made its way back to the States as a souvenir of some American G.I. As far as he was concerned, the hacker must be or have been hired by someone related to that soldier. It only made sense. The soldier kept the badge, and now, years later, his kids were searching for information regarding the badge. But why would they go to the trouble to hire a hacker? And how would they know there was actually something to look for? How did the soldier get the badge? And what was he told? There was more to this than some curious kid or collector. Chung hoped it wasn't a competitor, a rival businessman. Chung guessed it could be an American government agency. That's possible, but why? Any terrorist group or any of Chung's competitors would not have hired a hacker in the United States. There were too many risks. The FBI, especially now, was monitoring internet traffic, and the risk would not have been worth the benefit of using an American. They would have used someone in Eastern Europe or even Asia. He had to do something with the soldier's family. That was the only answer that made sense. He replied to the email, instructing his computer guys to expand their search. They needed to also look for anyone who was researching the power, the Pietro Omnipotente, as well as the Carabinieri officers, and the massacre in Sicily. He knew there was little chance more than one person would be researching such an obscure topic. If they found the researchers, he would find the missing badge. It only took an hour. The two mousy men reported to Chung's office to deliver the news. they had not yet been able to trace the hacker yet, but they had found an individual in Northern California searching for articles in obscure books relating to the power, and specifically the Pietro Omnipotente. The IP address was a fake, but they were able to trace back through the proxy server to identify the actual user, whose IP returned to an internet service provider, ISP, in the Bay Area. The two men explained they were working to hack into the ISP's account database to identify the address of the customer conducting the searches. Chung nodded appreciatively, which was probably the biggest compliment they would ever get from their boss. They promised to forward the results as soon as they could and happily left the room to continue their work. The researcher could not have been in a better or more convenient place. Chung dialed his cousin, Alex Lee, who ran Yongri businesses out of his restaurant in Chinatown, San Francisco. California had a very large and powerful ethnic Chinese population, and San Francisco was the epicenter of Chung's operations. Lee would have the resources to do what was needed to be done. The researcher could not be allowed to continue his work. The computer text results hit Chung's email and he forwarded the information to Alex. Alex would take care of it, Chung Liu. He had complete confidence. Chapter 44, Half Moon Bay, California. I didn't really have a bachelor party plan per se, but the guys from work did plan a little soiree at the office the night before the wedding. Given my renewed relationship with Robert, I had invited him to the party when we spoke the night before. None of the festivities were going to be in the secret areas of the office, so I wasn't worried about him finding out. We had a standard cover story anyway involving DNA research. No one asks any questions once you start talking DNA strands. Their eyes glaze over and they start nodding at random moments. The party had been going now for a couple of hours and he still hadn't shown up. I excused myself to go up to my office. Maybe Robert had left me a message or something. I minimized a few windows on my computer to look at my emails and then grabbed my phone off of the desk. The little indicator light on the front of the phone was pulsing, indicating there was a message. I sat down at the desk and swiped my finger up to return on the phone screen. It was a text message from Zyra. Hope you're having fun. Love you. She knew I wasn't interested in some of the crazier bachelor party traditions. I was having a good time, but I actually would have preferred a quiet night watching a movie on her couch. I glanced over at my email. An email from Robert appeared as I was looking, and my phone rang. I looked at the caller ID. It was Robert. I answered. Hey man, where are you? Listen! He sounded scared to death, a character in a horror movie. What's wrong? I had a sinking feeling he wasn't joking. Check your email. Someone is breaking into the house. I heard some muffled thuds in the background. Did you call the cops? Ashley was trying on the landline. I have been getting some strange calls from a guy with a Chinese accent. He was asking about my research into your thing. What? How? I don't know, but he tried to offer to buy it for me. Then when I refused, oh, I think he just broke the front door. He he threatened me. I don't know, Arch. Read what I sent you. It's some heavy stuff. I think I heard a crash as the phone hit the floor. Then screaming and things breaking as Robert, the schoolteacher, tried to defend himself. Robert! Robert! I yelled. It was no use. He was gone. Argh! I yelled in frustration. I felt so helpless. There was nothing I could do, and I knew it except beat whoever it was to the punch and return the badges to the rightful place on the mountain. I glanced over at a stack of paper on my desk. It was part of my wedding present to Zyra. Once a person was officially read into our work, we always sequenced their DNA, made it ready for immediate upload. I decided to surprise Zyra and get it done ahead of time. I took some hair from her brush and ran the sequencer all night the night before. Someone had placed the finished report on my desk to let me know it was done. That was good, I thought, just in time. I opened my email and saw the three attachments Robert sent to me. Hopefully he had a chance to delete them before they were sent. after they were sent, before the burglars got to his study. One was a document giving a more detailed history of the power, more examples of the things we talked about the other day. The other was a short U.S. Army after-action report detailing the death of one Carabinieri officer Giancarlo Russo after he was found by members of the 1st Special Service Force. That was Zyra's great-uncle! The report detailed a search for Russo's lost companion, Antonio Bellini, eventually finding him deceased. The report described Bellini as being found placed with gunshot wounds cleaned and his arms crossed, eyes shut with an iron cross on his chest, like someone had carefully laid him to rest. The report mentioned in passing that Bellini's uniform was intact, minus the insignia from his hat. The author of the report, opined the Italian, had either been killed accidentally by another Italian. Or by a sympathetic german who traded the iron cross for the flaming grenade i agreed with the sympathetic german theory an italian wouldn't dare remove the flaming grenade from a carabinieri officer's uniform no way so why was that important well if we were looking for the three outstanding badges and one was still missing this article described where it came from and where it might have gone it had to be in germany probably up in some attic trunk like the one we found in zyra's grandfather's old chest How in the world would we find some random Nazi soldier and determine he was the guy who found and took the badge, especially if no one even remembered it existed? I was going to have to leave that problem for later. I had more urgent things to worry about at the moment. I opened the final document. It was a scanned copy of a really old letter, written in what looked like French, but not really. I'm no expert at French, but I'm able to recognize it when I see it, and this was not pure French, the kind you learn in high school. It did have some sketches, one of a man with arms raised and the four seasons orbiting in a circle around him. If that paper was what I thought it was, we were in business. I printed out all three documents and then uploaded them to my online cloud account so I could access them from anywhere. Zara needed to see these. I figured the guys wouldn't notice if I snuck out early, so I left via the side entrance and drove to Zyra's house. She had a bridal shower, but only with a few close girlfriends. Chapter 45. Palo Alto, California. Ashley, it turned out, struck out trying to call the police. The landline had been cut, leaving only an empty silence when she lifted the receiver. Her cell phone was outside in her car. Robert was strapped to a kitchen chair with duct tape wound tightly until the wooden chair bit into his wrists and ankles. Since Robert only owned one kitchen chair, Ashley was laying on top of the table, duct tape completely wrapped around her and the table. She was wearing jeans and a gray blouse, the dull gray of her blouse standing out against the shiny silver of the tape. Her face was red and she couldn't stop crying, tears running down her cheeks, and snot bubbling from her nose. Neither could speak, with duct tape covering their mouths, and Robert was worried Ashley wouldn't be able to breathe she was sobbing so badly. Robert tried to make eye contact with her, calm her down somehow. There were two Asian men in the house, tearing apart his office. They spoke curtly to each other, and what Robert thought sounded like Chinese, but he was no expert. Ashley was the language guru, but Chinese was not her specialty. Robert could only see a corner of his office, but he cringed as he heard books crashing to the ground. He had multiple first edition books in the room worth hundreds of dollars, and he imagined the worst. Hopefully the sounds were worse than the actual damage, he hoped. They still hadn't explained what they were looking for or why they were there. He knew, of course. They had somehow traced his research back to him. That was the only thing he'd been working on at home, and the only thing big enough to cause this sort of reaction. But the report was Italian. What were these Chinese men doing, ransacking his house? Robert had tried to cover his tracks. He used an anonymizer service to spoof his IP address through a proxy server, but that was the extent of his expertise. He figured that it is, that is why it took them a day or so to find him instead of immediately. At least I gave him the time to find what he was looking for and send it on to Archie. Robert also had an eraser program on his computer, and immediately after emailing them to Archie, he erased the files in all tracks of his internet history. The eraser program advertised that it wiped the hard disk in the sectors where the file was found seven times, rewriting ones and zeros to erase all traces of the original files. Robert hoped his twenty bucks had been worth it. He was worried. He knew the men wouldn't find anything, and the next step was to start questioning him. The one thing he had going was that he had not read all of the documents, only scanned them. He hadn't had time before the men knocked on the door. He hoped they would believe him. Robert guessed they already knew the basics, but they certainly didn't know about Archie and Zyra. He thought he would be able to keep his mouth shut, be the macho hero, but he couldn't speak for Ashley. Luckily, she only knew their names, not where they lived or what they did for a living. A muscle Chinese man walked around the corner into the kitchen. Robert stifled a giggle because the guy looked just like Odd Job from that James Bond movie. He couldn't help it, and the situation just made it seem more hilarious, like a scene from a bad movie. Robert was wondering where the guy hid his killer bowler hat. The man scowled, and Robert regretted laughing. He walked up to Robert and, without saying a word, slapped him in the face, hard. "'Where is it?' the man asked and ripped the tape off so Robert could answer. Robert winced in pain. "'Where's what?' Robert asked dumbly. "'You haven't even told us why you're here.' That earned Robert another slap. Ashley's frenetic sobbing renewed. "'Alex?' the man, still in the office, shouted. "'No names!' "'What?' "'Uh, sorry, boss. He has an eraser program running on the computer.' "'Shut it down!' turning to Robert. What did you erase? Ajob asked. I always erase my files. I don't know, just stuff in my recycle bin. Apparently, that was not the answer he was looking for. The man Alex put the tape back over Robert's mouth and pushed his chair back. It rocked on its back legs. His head whiplashed before the chair settled back down on all four legs. You will talk, Alex grinned. Don't you worry. You will talk. Chapter forty-six. Oberammergau, Bavaria, Germany. Heinrich couldn't sleep. He had a morning flight to Catania, so with an hour drive to the airport plus check-in time, he needed to leave around 0700. His bags were packed ready to go. He had included some hiking gear just in case. He was from the mountains, the middle of the Alps, and not knowing much about Etna except it was a mountain, he wanted to be prepared. He knew it was probably overkill, but that's better than being caught up in the mountains unprepared. He had his backpack and a suitcase. He could leave whatever he didn't need in his car trunk or hotel room and use his backpack for hiking and camping. Heinrich had a random thought about a camping trip he took the previous summer. He was at a campsite reading by the light of his lantern when a family from somewhere else in Europe pulled into the campsite next to them. The dad set up a tent in the dark and then put the kids out on the cold ground while he and his wife laid down the seats in the car and slept there. There was no campfire or anything else Heinrich had always associated with camping. To the family, it was just a place to sleep before moving on. Heinrich admired the thriftiness, but that would get old pretty quick and was not his idea of a great vacation. He had a lot of ground to cover with no real guidance except for which side of the mountain he was searching. He planned to ask around with the locals, but had a feeling it would not be an open and welcome subject. Maybe an old man would remember and be willing to talk. Heinrich knew the Sicilians were a superstitious people, and there was nothing worse than talking about a massacre perpetrated by some unknown being. Heinrich was sure he would hear stories of a great beast living on the mountain if he talked to the right people. Well, whatever information he got from the locals, he planned on finding the site if it killed him. It couldn't be too far out of the way, because his father would not have been patrolling somewhere there wasn't a trail. Heinrich was nervous about what he would find. He didn't know exactly what he had to do when he finally found the clearing, but figured he would know when he got there. He looked over at his wife, fast asleep on her side, curled up into a ball. When he finished this, he could let go of the ghosts of his past. He had to finish this. Chapter 47, Half Moon Bay, California Sarah and her friends were sipping drinks and watching some romantic garbage—I mean movie—on the living room TV. I entered through the back door into the kitchen so as not to barge in on their party. I opened the fridge to get a bottle of water and greedily drank. Man, was I thirsty. With the bottle still raised in my mouth, Sarah walked into the kitchen with the bowl of popcorn, now with only unpopped seeds in the bottom. She gasped in surprise and dropped the bowl. I choked on the water and spit it out in a coughing fit, luckily mostly hitting the sink and counter, a few spatters on the window. Popcorn seeds flew in every direction as the bowl clattered and clanged on the hardwood floor. "'Is everything okay, Z? I I heard Emily ask from the front room. "'Fine, clumsy me, I dropped the bowl.' Sarah looked at me. "'What are you doing here? Is your party over?' She asked in a loud whisper. "'No, we've got to talk.' I saw her expression change to shock, thinking it was about the wedding. "'No, no, it's about Robert. He's in trouble.' Sarah visibly relaxed, then tensed, again as she realized what I just said. What's going on? Robert called me at the office in panic. He sent me an email, and then I heard a crash and him struggling. He said someone was trying to break into his house, and then nothing. What do you mean, nothing? The phone went dead. I don't know if someone hung it up or smashed it. We sat in silence, horrified at the possibilities. Oh, Archie, what do we do? I don't know. He mentioned Ashley was trying to call the cops, but I don't know if she got a hold of them. Ashley was there, too? I guess so. It was then I remembered the contents of the email. Here, look, these are the attachments to his email. I spread them out on the counter and began to look over the documents in silence, trading places as we each finished the report in front of us. Emily walked into the kitchen and stopped short. Oh, she said, hi, Archie, what are you doing here? Hey, Emily, I replied, sorry for crashing your party, but I needed to tell her something. Emily looked at Zyra, who nodded. She got the hint and went into the other room. I heard her telling the other girls the party was over. They all poked their heads into the kitchen and wished Zyra a good final night as a single woman. When all but Emily were gone, she came into the kitchen and plopped down on a bar stool. Okay, spit it out. What in the world is going on? We both feigned innocence. What? We said in unison. First, you miss your beach picnic. Then you change your wedding date. Then you skip out on your parties. Come on, guys, give it up. What's going on? I looked over at Zyra and shrugged. I couldn't say anything about the teleporter at work. But we did owe her some sort of an explanation. She was Zara's maid of honor, after all. I started to explain it to Emily, kind of glancing over how I came to be in possession of my badge. I focused in on the supposed magical properties of the badges and the history of the power. This interested Emily. She was a bit new age, shall I say? And anything to do with mystical powers was right up her alley. I asked Zyra to grab the badges from her room. She did, and then reverently unwrapped them on the table. I picked one up in each hand and brought them together. When they were about three inches apart, they suddenly began to vibrate and shimmer. Suddenly, they were wrenched from my hands and began to orbit around each other. The air surrounding the spinning badges grew warm, and the hairs on our heads stood up like you after you rub a balloon on the carpet and hold it close to your hair. Emily's mouth hung open more in awe than in any kind of shock. "'That is so cool!' she exclaimed excitedly. "'So what does it mean?' (coughs) I pulled the badges out of the air and rewrapped them, setting them apart on the table." The electricity in the air dissipated, and it only felt cold. I gave Emily a brief overview of what we knew and tried to explain why we needed to return the badges to Italy where they belonged. I probably didn't make any sense at all, because I was so preoccupied with Robert. I didn't want to scare Emily with the details, and besides, we didn't actually know what happened. I did try to stress that fact that the power was dangerous. Crazy mad dictators started wars to get their hands on it, and the quicker we could get rid of it, the better. Emily really wanted to help, but I couldn't put her at risk as well. Now we knew someone was after the badges, someone with enough power and influence to find Robert just because he happened to engage in some relatively innocent online research. As far as I could tell, that meant the person, whoever he was, had been patiently waiting, had put some sort of flag on any sites with information pertaining to the power, and then tracked the activity back to Robert. "'So what are you going to do?' Emily asked. "'Well, for one, we're going to get married tomorrow, and it's going to be perfect,' Sarah stated matter-of-factly. "'Right,' I agreed.' But, Zyra, I want you to stay with Emily tonight if that's possible. Emily nodded in agreement. Okay, Em, we need to take care of a few things, and then I will drop Z off at your place. Sound good? Sounds great, but be careful. If you let Zyra get hurt, I'm going to come kick your butt, mister. Here, take these documents with you and put them somewhere safe at your house. I can get other copies. Emily gathered up the papers and then went into the living room to tidy up. She called out a few minutes later as she left. We were in Zyra's bedroom packing. Zyra's wedding dress was already at Emily's house. She was planning to go there in the morning to get dressed for the ceremony anyway. I had her pack her normal suitcase and then a backpack with the essentials. We could use it as a carry-on or as an emergency bag if we needed to. We put toiletries, a change of clothes, her passport and wallet in the backpack. I put the badges in my pockets, in separate pockets. I carried the suitcase downstairs and placed it by the door. Sarah came down a minute later, ready to go. "'We need to run by the office,' I said. "'Why?' I need to take care of a few things and show you something, okay, I'm ready. Check the back door, will you, and turn out the lights? Thank you for listening to this episode of The Flaming grenade. Hope you enjoyed it. Um just remember that you can buy the ebook on Amazon if you would like to read it and please subscribe and share with your friends and I'll see you next time on The Flaming Grenade.